Hello and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. My name is David Breer and in today's episode in association with CallSign, we're looking at the world of data enrichment. The idea that organizations can leverage data to gain better understanding of their customers is better understood than it once was. But what actually does this look like in practice? And actually, how does it really come to life? For reducing fraudulent transactions to improved UX to more efficient compliance with regulators, data leveraged and enrichment opens up so many avenues for financial organizations. So today, we're taking a bit of a look at what this means, what are the challenges still to overcome, and is the future of data enrichment very clear? All right, well, maybe let's uh, get started as always by saying I am not alone. Uh, It makes it sound like I would just be sitting here talking about this stuff on my own. I'm not quite that crazy about fintech as as many people would believe, but I am joined by an amazing panel of guests who can share much more light on all of these things. Uh, making their FinTech Insider debut, we have Chris Stevens, who is the head of solution engineering for UK, Europe, and South Africa. That's a big coverage of, of space there, Chris, uh, at CallSign. Uh, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Yeah, doing well, thank you. Good to be on. Well, uh, what I'd like to do is maybe get you to tell everybody a little bit more about CallSign and then explain how you ended up with such a large jurisdiction when it comes to your title as well. I mean, maybe start with CallSign and we'll get to the second one second. Yeah, no, that sounds good. Um, yeah, so um, I joined CallSign over over seven years ago when it was a, a proper startup. So I've been on the kind of full journey, um, you know, scaling up and, and watching, the, watching the company grow. Um, but essentially what we, what we do is we help clients... Um, with their fraud authentication and digital identity challenges. So we work with a wide range of organizations from banks and crypto exchanges through to retailers and, and government departments. And ultimately, we use our technology to answer three key questions each time a, a customer interacts with a digital channel. Um, so the first thing that we do is we, we want to check that it's actually a, a genuine human. So it's not a, a, a bot or some kind of and strange malware on a device. We then want to make sure that it's the genuine owner of an account, so it's not someone that's kind of taken taken it over. Um, and then also the kind of final part is that we want to make sure that the user's not being tricked into performing some kind of action. And so by answering these three questions, what we found is that you know, it's a very effective way at, at preventing lots of different types of kind of attack vectors um, that we see out in the market. And Obviously, they kind of constantly evolve, but by you know, kind of following those those three principles, you know, it, it gives a kind of upper hand against the fraudsters. Very cool. And, and as you say, I mean, this uh, uh, from a, a topic perspective in terms of that level of fraud, I mean, this is something that's just getting bigger and bigger as, a, as an industry problem, isn't it? The more we go digital, the more opportunities there is for fraud. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you know, each time a new regulation comes in, you know, it just then changes how the, the fraudsters behave. Um, and you know, it's a constant. You've got to constantly evolve to, to kind of see these new, see as these new behaviours evolve. Yeah, there is nothing as innovative as fraudsters, is there? It really is. I mean, we, we'd all be out of a job if uh, if we could uh, out innovate them. But uh, they're pretty pretty wiry, aren't they? In that sense. But uh, we'll talk about that a lot more as uh, as the show goes on. So uh, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, also making their fintech insider debut today, we have PJ Rohol, the fraud subject matter expert at Feature Space. Thanks for joining us, PJ. Can you give our audience a little bit more information on Feature Space, please? Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. So Feature Space is a fraud and financial crime prevention platform. So we leverage our um, adaptive behavioral analytics, which is our proprietary machine learning technology. So it's kind of a mouthful, but basically use really, really smart data science technology to solve some of the hardest fraud and financial crime problems in the market. So we work with um, financial institutions, payment processors, merchant acquirers um, across the globe. And we focus um, uh, pretty heavily on the transaction, so the monetary and non-monetary information. We can partner with authentication solutions like CallSign. We have very complementary technology. Um, so it's really excited to be here and, and chat with you guys today. Very cool. How'd you get into the fraud space? I'm, I'm guessing this is not an industry that you do a lot of fraud, therefore you get into the fraud space. Is there a, a more legitimate way of getting into the industry potentially? 
There is. I mean, I fell backwards into it, though. I, uh, I, I studied finance and started out more in an operations fraud investigator role. And then I kind of worked my way up through there. It's, it's one of those things I didn't, didn't study it in school. It's the, the career path. People come from lots of different uh, areas to get in fraud, fraud prevention and fi- financial crime management. But, um, you know, it's an awesome industry in the sense that it is always changing. You are continually evolving and learning uh, different technology, different trends. And I love that I that I did fall into it. Yeah, well, I, I say this uh, a number of times a day. We are very lucky to work in financial services at the period that we are, aren't we? It's the uh, definitely the most fascinating that it, I think it's been. So, uh, all right. Well, uh, and last, but uh, very much not by least there in that sense, um, making a very welcome return to the show, Livia Ministi, who is the global head of business AML at Banking Circle. Welcome back to the show. How you been? Thanks, David. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. It's uh, good to have you back. Uh, For anybody who doesn't remember, tell us a little bit more about Banking Circle. Sure. Banking Circle is a financial infrastructure platform, and we offer faster and more inexpensive cross-border payments to banks and other payment service providers. Very, very cool. Busy times on that front as well, eh? Very busy. Very, very busy. It's nice though, Again, you know, ending out Q1, there's some, uh, lots, of, uh, lots of fun to be had in that sense, isn't there? And, and as you say, from a client perspective, this is a problem that so many organizations are facing into, eh? It is, it is a huge problem and it's been fun trying to scale a team whilst trying to solve it. I think Q1 with the Russia and Ukraine sanctions for the head of AML made solving that problem a little bit more challenging. So it's always something new, something fun to try and tackle. Yeah, there's always a pull on talent somewhere, isn't there, for sure. All right, guys. Well, I mean, we we could chat, I think, literally for hours on uh, this subject matter in one form or another. But maybe if we kind of get going by trying to set the scene a little bit for how things really look in 2022. I mean, firstly, Christopher, should we maybe start with you? Can you define the term data enrichment? Because it kind of feels like I've heard lots of different definitions, but just to get us all on the same page, do you want to get us going? Yeah, no, that sounds good. I mean, so for, for me, data enrichment is all about getting a better understanding of an action that a user is performing. So you know, when assessing risk, it, you know, it should be based on not just what the customer is doing, but how and why they're doing it. So you know, without enrichment, you might just be looking at actions in isolation. So you might be looking at abnormal spending patterns, for example. So is it a high transaction amount to a new beneficiary at a strange time of day? You know, that might be you know, an element of risk. But with data enrichment, you're able to get much more kind of contextual information around that action to actually understand, is it the actual customer? And also, are they being tricked into performing something? I mean, it's a, it's a different way of looking at it, isn't it? A bit more progressive around the way in which you're capturing that data and therefore what you're doing about it. I mean, to, to a, you know, the, the analogy that I've always kind of used is big organizations have sort of treated it like the bouncer on the front door at a disco. It's like, once you're in, you're in, and you can do all sorts of crazy stuff. But actually, to your point, if you're using much more rich sources of data, contextual elements around that, then actually your sophistication at that stage is just off the charts, isn't it? Exactly. And you know, there's lots of different types of data that are available that can you know, in, it help you get a better understanding of, of an activity. Um, and that might be from you know, how the customer is interacting with their, their device, even knowing you know, is the device trustworthy itself. Um, and then even looking at other things like what do the telcos know about the, the customer's telephone number? Has it recently changed? Is there an active call that's taking place? Um, and then on the other side of things, actually looking at where the money's going to. So things like confirmation of payee came in you know, relatively recently in the UK to check that the account name matches the, the, the person you think you're sending money to. Um, and then you take that to the, the kind of crypto world and suddenly you're able to assess, okay, I'm sending this money to this crypto wallet. Is there an element of risk associated with that? So data enrichment can, you know, data comes from all over the place. And I think when you combine it together, it really helps you get that better understanding of, of the risk around an activity. Yeah. And I think that point around risk, I mean, this is, you know, we're, we're dealing in a digital means, we're dealing in a digital world, you know, we're never going to be able to turn off risk in totality, either from a business perspective or from a consumer perspective. But we can definitely limit the exposure to that by being a lot more intelligent about how we manage these situations, can't we? I mean, Livia, what, what type of data are we talking about in this sense then? How, how do we 
how do we layer on extra sources of data? We, we talked about uh, telephony there from from a certain perspective in terms of what MNOs know about people, but but arguably, I mean, in a in an open data world, we could be layering all different types of data into this sense in order to to really enrich that view and de-risk that process, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, it's been really interesting watching more data enrichment um, companies coming in. I think it started really focused on fraud. Um, and I don't envy heads of fraud in, in financial institutions who are having to deal with transactions at the moment they take place. Um, I've been more focused on AML thus far, which means that we have a few a few days to figure out the, the suspicious activity. It tends to be more retrospective. But now there's this fantastic overlap of what is the information that you can collect at the point of sale and how can you possibly use that for behavior afterwards? The kinds of information that Chris was talking about there, your um, what's going on on that device at the time, is there an active call taking place, I find really fascinating. From a corporate perspective, because I work more with corporate customers, um, at a very kind of early stage, we've started, we started this by trying to take in data from open corporates or, or um, corporate registries, etc. And the validity of that information is, can be a separate discussion, but that's the first thing we could do is to try and create those networks around directors and beneficial owners to see if maybe there's a circular flow of money around people that have control of entities that you perhaps aren't um, interacting directly with. So in the corporate space, there's a lot that you can do as well. It's interesting. I mean, I, I guess that um, size of the prize, as you say, from a corporate level perspective, but as Chris was referring to earlier on, the the sort of uh, entrepreneurial spirits that comes with fraudsters in this space, then I, I guess the this is a battle that will always be being fought, essentially, in terms of enriching more as the context and the usage of, of well, you know, the entrepreneurial nature of fraud continues to, to build. Yeah, definitely. And I think the, the fraud is, is occurring across corporates and retails. I think the pain is felt more by individuals because it's more personal, although the, the financial loss is huge to corporates as well. So I don't mean to compare them totally equivalent, uh, make them totally yeah. equivalent. But the, the range of data that you can use is almost limitless. Um, I think it really, what will be interesting is how we go further into targeting that. So not just individuals, but individuals using a certain type of product at a certain time within a certain age bracket versus a corporate at different strata of, of size, different levels of size or development, the more that you can segment that behavior, the more interesting and the more accurate it gets. And it's precisely these kinds of tools that will help us do that. Yeah. And I, I guess, uh, I mean, uh, PJ, like the level of sophistication we're talking about here, I mean, some of this sounds sort of, you know, future gazing a little bit in terms of crystal ball of what we could do. But where are we at from a reality of the industry perspective? Because I guess, you know, Livia's talked about some of the corporates. The corporates are not that innovative in this space in some instances. So, like, how far along this journey do you think we are? I think we're really far along with how much data is out there and how many solutions are offering data enrichment. It's almost to the point where there's too many options and how are you going to choose all these different data sources? What are the best ones? And how do you combine them across the user journey for the different fraud types? So it's great to have all this data. I don't think there's a data scientist or an analytics person who doesn't want more data, but there's a complexity in how you orchestrate this across the journey. And I think that is challenging because you have at the point of onboarding, when you're doing identity verification, they're opening an account, you have when those people come back and authenticate them to make sure they're the right people coming back to that account. And then you have the transaction um, at the point of payment, transaction fraud. Past that, you have money laundering. So using things like device intelligence, behavioral biometrics, geolocation, identity verification tools um, are really helpful. It's just um, it's, a, it, it's also challenging to apply it in the right way. Um, to all the specific fraud use cases. So to answer your question, I think we're there. I think we have a lot of the, the data sources and there'll be more that come out. It's just kind of being able to harness that data and use those signals in the most appropriate way. I think it's also important. We've been talking about external data mostly. Um, and we, there's also that internal data piece. We tend to skip, we're skipping ahead a little bit, whereby we're focused on everything that we can get from the outside. I think the first thing to do is to get your internal data straight and see what you can gather from within your own organization. Because if you don't get that right, you're not going to use that external data well, or um, you might just be skipping ahead a little bit. So I think that was a point worth mentioning. Yeah, I mean, I'm a, a 
you know, computer science grad, like, you know, the difference between data and information was uh, was like at least a semester worth of classes, you know what I mean? So, so I mean, are we, to your point, Livia, I mean, my, my experience with big corporates is it's like Aladdin's cave, do you know what I mean? It's like, there's a lot of riches in there, but nobody's allowed in there at pain of death, you know, like, so, you know, using these things to help people make better decisions in order to create better outcomes for the customer and outcome for the business. Like, is that is that the step that we're not quite at then, PJ? You know, because you, you, you say, I think there's, there's a wealth of data sources. There's a wealth of uh, enrichment potentials that are out there. But unless it fundamentally starts changing the way in which your business is changing their decision-making process, whether that's, you know, literally people get together with the data and make a decision or whether that's the automation of that to change the outcomes in real time for, for customers, is that, the, is that the leap that we haven't quite made then? Yeah, I think it varies by institution too. So like, you know, some are, are probably harnessing the data well, are, are, are orchestrating it across user journey, and it's coming up with good decisions and outcomes. And everyone, even those are going to have challenges and always trying to bring in different data sources, tweak things. And some are really early on in the journey. So it's going to probably depend on organization, industry, how well you're utilizing this. All this data isn't um, external data isn't free. So, you know, it, it, it costs money. So you got to balance that in there. But to Livia's point, you're, you're exactly right, especially if you have data at your access, it, it is free. Um, we When we talk with FIs and looking at the transactions they have, the non-monetary account changes, let's use all that. Let's use that data. Let's bring that into our models and understand those signals because they can be really helpful um, and can get you a certain part of the way. Um, but it's great that you have external data sources too where you can kind of mix and match and and use different signals that can indicate different types of behavior, like the behavioral biometrics and analyzing how a computer or how a person interacts with a computer or a device, that's going to give you different signals than analyzing their transaction information. And you can use the power of both of those. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? They're getting that balance between the two of them. I mean, Chris, I guess, again, if we sort of point back to, and obviously you guys work with a lot of different sizes of organizations in this space in terms of what you do. I mean, what's the biggest hurdle for people to to get to this point? Is it is it literally getting their hands on the data, or is it more of a of a cultural shift in terms of the uh, the the abilities of the organisation to to work in a different way? Yeah, so I think in terms of the, the challenges, you know, in the past, a lot of this data wasn't available in in real time, or the data was there, but actually turn it into something that's useful, it wasn't available. Um, you know, an example, for example, you know, that was you know, that the telcos provided was a, a SIM swap flag. So they basically said a SIM swap had occurred within a certain period of time. Um, but that then evolved over the last couple of years to give you an actual timestamp, which obviously a timestamp to say, okay, this happened you know, 30 minutes ago is a lot more useful to say you know, it happened within the last 30 days. And it evolved to be a real-time API. And so suddenly, if you have a real-time API, which you can call and actually react to the response to then change your user journey, that's a lot more effective than you know, basically saying, okay, that was fraud after the event. So definitely having the, the real-time information is, is great. But again, this might be coming from lots of different sources. So you can't go and call 10 different APIs to then get the responses, wait for those responses, and then write some kind of policy over them. You, know, you, need, to be, you need to be smarter with the, the data you collect. And actually, you might only decide to collect that data when something else has been detected. So actually just orchestrating all those the collectors is, is really important as well. Um, and ideally, you're not going to lots of different systems to do that. Ideally, <laughs> that's the. I guess that's the challenge when we sort of face into uh, you know building on my um, my Aladdin's cave metaphor. It ain't just one cave usually in terms of all of the data sources, as Livia sort of said about the the internal data sources of a big organization. So, uh, kind of reconciling those two things together, Chris, in terms of that. You know, we we know we need to consolidate. We know we need to have single source of data, and actually, we know that we need to train even training algorithms to be able to identify. It's like um, 
It's like in a, a factory. If you have to check every bottle before it goes out of the factory, there's going to be a real problem. So you need to train the, the systems to identify the errors. Uh, and the sophistication that you get in those systems is where you can really, you know, create efficiencies across the organization, can't you? But but this stuff's this stuff's hard, isn't it? Like this is a yeah. don't get us wrong. There's no there's no sort of utopia technology that makes it change. It's it's actually a hard process, isn't it? Yeah, and I think as well, you know, it's if you're introducing something in real time, you know, you don't know exactly how it will perform until you've actually you know, put it in place. Um, and so I think it's really important also to be able to run things like A-B tests on different approaches. You might say, well, I'm going to try this data from here and this data from there. Let's see which had a better impact on you know, fraud detection or customer experience. And so having that kind of flexibility to, to actually try some of these things out and you know, not say, right, well, we're putting a contract in place for three years and we're going to run with it and hopefully it gives us the results that we were shown in a, in a presentation. Um, I think, yeah, you've got to be able to be more flexible and, and actually some data might stop being valuable over, over a period of time as well, because fraudsters will move on and actually you want to look at something else to, to kind of adapt. Yeah. It's a funny, wasn't it? When you, uh, when you stand back from fraud, uh, and Livia, I mean, you, you, you live in this world day in, day out. I just, uh, I just visit it every so often. But having worked at a big banking organization for six years of my life, uh, it was punishment for something I'm from a previous life. I'm not quite sure what it was, but uh, it must have been bad. Um, but the idea of fraud is something that people don't connect it with their day-to-day business. You know, they don't connect it. The people in the digital team, they don't think about fraud in that context. And almost it's sort of turned into, well, there's a department who worries about that, or it's just a it's just a cost of doing business. Um, but the reality of that is it's like compliance. It's like it should be part of everybody's roles, shouldn't it, to, to be thinking about these things or de-risking it from a business perspective. Um, h- how do you instill that? I mean, that was a big question. <laughs> yeah, I think I think you're right. I think it's a bit. Um, I think that is is changing already. So I think fraud as being a separate department is maybe a bit like when AML was a separate department. Probably didn't even feature and other than outside the bracket of compliance. Actually, um, fraud is increasingly coming under financial crime. There's increasingly an expectation that the head of financial crime would also manage fraud. Um, I'm desperately running in the opposite direction, but I'm sure it's going to catch up with me at some point. Um, So I I do think that it is increasingly front and center, especially with the amount that it's in the papers, um, things like elderly abuse on financial accounts, uh, massive fraud scams, what that means for corporates, what that means for individuals. It's getting a lot more traction in the press. So I do actually think that it is now much more front and center and is becoming um, a larger part of people's everyday jobs in a financial institution especially um, get with an increase in, in consumer protection regulation and that being more front and center. But also with this increase in fintech um, and the relative cost of a fraud loss being so much higher for the slightly smaller organizations, I think that's also helped bring it front and center. I was really fascinated. Recently, I got um, an email from Revolut talking about how it's tax season and therefore there's these kinds of tax fraud schemes that you see. You might get that text from HMRC. I think I've already had three. Um, and they then making their customers aware of what they might see, I thought was a fascinating approach to it um, that we're beginning to see more and more. And that for me is evidence of how it is becoming much more mainstream to think about these things day to day. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, and and actually in order to have needed to send you that, then there must have been many a cases where that has happened as well, right? It's uh, you never need a warning sticker unless somebody's done it already, you know, it's uh, it's a bizarre one. There definitely are. Um, I think it's amazing. And it really is, if I can chime in, just mainstream from an education standpoint too. There's platforms out there, social media platforms that are being exploited for scamming. And there's ones that are trying to step up and do more educational things with scams, with tax scams. Um, so it's it's very it's very buzzy from a media standpoint, from a social media standpoint, and it's forcing businesses to not just look at their fraud losses, but seeing how it's impacting their customers, their experience, their lives. Um, and it can also be a revenue generating machine fraud if you're reducing false positives, if you're putting more accounts through, more customers through, that I think businesses are kind of catching up with that. 
Absolutely. Fundamentally, has a, a you know bottom line improvement from an organizational perspective, getting it right, doesn't it? So, uh, all right. Well, I mean, having laid out a little bit more about the current challenges, I mean, we've we've sort of unpacked that a little bit. There's a little bit technology. There's a little bit keeping up with what's actually happening. There's a, a little bit cultural in that sense as well. Then maybe let's uh, have a little bit more of a look about what data enrichment can bring to the table for financial organizations and the problems it can actually help solve. Um, I mean, who wants to start with this one? It's what granular insights does data enrichment give an organization? Maybe, Chris, do you want to start with this one? Because actually, I think in the abstract, people recognize this. It's like the greater data we have, the more we can do, the more opportunities we can solve. But if we really get down to the detail on it, well, what what examples can we draw for organizations that it would, as, you know, as we were saying, that would materially drive the, uh, you know, drive the dial up a little bit in terms of being able to handle this? Yeah, so I'll give you kind of one one example where kind of data is used quite in a quite interesting way to to actually detect a, a very specific type of fraud. Um, so there's some malware going around called called T-Bot. So it's been around quite quite a while, and it it, it has a few different um, ways in which it behaves. But one of those is is ultimately providing an attacker with remote control of a, a user's mobile mobile device. So where in the past you might have malware that used to forward on text messages and things like that, now what Air Frauds is actually able to do is with your phone just sitting on the table, they're able to, to access it and open up all your apps. And so if you've got a banking app on there or a crypto exchange, they can open it up um, and then they can start moving money out of those those accounts. So it's a it's a pretty terrifying um, kind of fraud if that was to happen to your to your phone, right? Um, but this is where actually analysing some of the sensors helps you to detect when it isn't actually a genuine user operating a device. So if I'm if I'm kind of tapping away on my phone, typing in numbers or swiping across the screen, um, movement is picked up in the gyroscope and the accelerometer. So these are the kind of movement sensors that. You know, when you rotate your your phone, the screen rotates. Or if you're going driving along, you can see that the the car's moving at uh, forty miles an hour, right? So they're very sensitive, um, and they pick up these subtle movements. So if um, a banking app is being controlled and is you know it looks like someone's tapping away on a screen and moving and pressing buttons, but you don't see the corresponding movement in those sensors. And straight away, you can see, well, this isn't actually a human driving this. And actually, there's a, an element of, of you know, a remote access control of this user's device. So you know, it's, it's interesting because obviously the handsets you know, didn't put a gyroscope and accelerometer in, in the device for that reason. But it's a nice way that you can actually use that data to, to you know, identify some of these attacks. Yeah, that's that is fascinating, isn't it? And actually tapping into that data source, as you say, for that non-intended uh, sort of outcome on it, uh, it's fascinating as well. Like you say, the the different locations where people go or where they're going. I mean, for for anybody who uh, doesn't know by now, having been on listening to this podcast, I live in Norwich. So if if my phone was hurtling through the uh, the countryside at 100 miles an hour, it's probably just I'm on the way to work, you know, in terms of sitting on the train. So that's something that actually, I mean, those those patterns around that data as well could be fascinating to understand the the context in which people are accessing that service, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, using the location is another good way to identify when strange things are happening. So one of the ways that banks are also being targeted um, is what's called the kind of device linking or, or device binding uh, user journey. So that's essentially, you know, it, when I'm a genuine customer, if I get a new iPhone, I need to associate my banking app with that, that new iPhone. So I might need to go down a specific path. Obviously, I can't use like biometrics, I can't use Face ID because that's on the old device. I need to um, do some authentication on on that new device. Um, but what you can do is actually assess the risk of that new device. So if I'm a, a an iPhone 12 user and I suddenly see that the, my account is being linked on a Samsung Galaxy 9, and normally I'm in in London, and then this binding's happening in Norwich you have a whole load of different indicators and then you overlay things like behavior. So actually how I normally type in my username 
is different to how this person's you hold in the phone. Straight away, you've got a whole set of kind of data which um, you know, supports that this looks a bit strange. And you might even then go out to say the telcos as well to say, has, has Chris's phone, has it been SIM swapped? Because actually, if it hasn't been SIM swapped, why am I seeing this happening on this, this new device? So it's all about combining all these different points together to actually make that, that risk assessment. Um, and yeah, it's, it's amazing the amount of data that you can use to, to do that. Yeah, it's sort of, uh, there is no yes, there is no no, but there's a triangulation of risk there, there, isn't there, in terms of the opportunities for this data from extra data sources. But Levia, what what do you think? Any other uh, big examples that actually you think would really change it? When when we build products at 11FS, we use Riches, which is real-time, intelligent, contextual, human, extendable, and social. In this context, there's so many of them that really sort of ping with these examples, doesn't it? In that real-time intelligent, the context is so critical. So are there any other examples that spring to mind from your perspective? I have to be honest, I'm finding this absolutely fascinating because for the past few years, my focus has been on um, PSPs banking other corporates and, and small merchants and not the retail space. And there's so, so much you can do in the retail space. And I'm sure there is in corporate, but my mind is sort of just following where Chris went. I'm just absolutely fascinated by it. I'm sort of geeking out because there's stuff in here that I haven't I haven't heard about before. Maybe I shouldn't be holding my hands up to that, but it just isn't my space. Um, so I'm absolutely loving hearing that. It's an environment where we all learn. Like, uh, nobody knows all the answers. Chris doesn't know everything about everything. He's very smart, but, like, there's things we can teach him too, I'm sure. So, uh, uh, so I guess, PJ, I mean, you must see this in various different guises with the organizations that you work with as well. So a- any other killer examples? Yeah, for sure. And it kind of goes back to what I talked about before with monetary transaction data and non-monetary profile changes, beneficiary, phone number, address. All that is usually information the financial institution has and can be very helpful to develop behavioral profiles around that transaction information. So you get a lot of good intelligence and insight in developing behavioral profiles and risky attributes in the transaction setting. Then you marry in the digital, the IP, the geolocation, the behavioral biometrics. That can be great contextual information on top of that. And it's really at different points in the journey. So the transaction, obviously at the end, but authentication when that user is logging into the bank account, Um, that's at a a different point. So if you can marry that data together, bring different insights, different signals, that's ideal. Yeah, super powerful, isn't it? I mean, Livia, before we wrap up this section, any other thoughts on there? Because, I mean, I've learned my lesson, don't let Chris go first, basically, is the the, the point on on the next round. But uh, any other closing thoughts? Yeah, he does keep knocking it out of the park with the answers. Um, Yeah, so I think listening to Chris and hearing about the kind of personal behavior things, that's the bit that's maybe less relevant for me from a corporate perspective, other than the person who's maybe making the instruction on the account, but it would be in a a slightly different setting. I think having made the internal data point earlier, if I go back to the external data, actually, if you're working with corporates, things like when to expect certain flows of transactions. So if you're working with gambling merchants, as an example, and the World Cup's on, when should you expect to start seeing a kind of peak in bets being made? Or if there's a game, an England game going on, for example, and we're at a draw and it looks like, I'm not even going to try and pretend that I know any of the players on the England team anymore. I used to be very into it, moved to America, ruined it for me. Um, but that kind of thing. Um, or at Christmas, for example, so Banking Circle has a huge platform of e-commerce merchants. And we definitely expect um, Black Friday, uh, Singles Day, um, Cyber Monday, you know, we need the whole team in, especially for something like sanction screening because we know there's going to be a huge spike. So being able to plan around that so that you're not assessing behavior across an expectation of constant flow, but that you know when to expect certain peaks and troughs and you don't suddenly get a spike of alerts telling you that volume and value have gone through the roof, which is the traditional transaction monitoring rules, unfortunately. You can actually avoid those false positives as well. Yeah, I think, Livia, as well, I mean, that's that's definitely true in the fraud world as well in terms of that kind of seasonal element and how... Like the fraud MOs change. So I know like last summer when you had Euro you know, 2020 on, you had a load of scams around fake tickets that were out there. But obviously, you know, no one's going to buy a fake ticket once the finals happened. And then you know, we saw all the kind of fake vaccine texts and all that kind of stuff. So I think, I think you're right. Like you have these kind of seasonal things and you should have that, those fraud strategies in place look at this the external events to actually inform how you want to you know, set your controls up 
I think it's a great point. I'll just jump in here too, because we work with TSIS and we did a whole case study around COVID and the change in behavior, online, digital, kind of how that shifted and being able to develop, you can develop behavioral profiles on that. So your models and analytics adjust as consumer behavior changes. So you mentioned peak Christmas time. There's all kinds of different seasonal things um, that you can plan for in your analytics. And it's right there in the transaction information um, for you to access. So I think that's a really good point. Thank you for bringing that up. Well, then, as you say, I mean, as all of you are agreeing, this is a this is a shifting, evolving thing. Your model is not static. You know, fraud is not static. The vectors that people use to to attack things are not static. So, keeping on top of those trends, keeping ahead of that stuff is is super duper important. Unfortunately, that brings us to the end of this part of the show. Though, we're going to have a quick break and hear from our sponsors. Back with you shortly. CallSign makes digital life smoother and safer by helping organizations establish and preserve digital trust so people can get on with their digital lives. The first true representation of identity online, CallSign positively identifies users by their unique characteristics, replicating real-life recognition signals with AI models. The only solution to identify people across every journey, channel, and brand, CallSign makes digital identification seamless and secure, helping drive business growth. Find out more at callsign.com. Did you know 40% of Australian fintechs are leaders on the global stage? Whether it's simplifying global banking, buy now, pay later, or smart tech for insurance providers, many brilliant ideas developed in Australia are winning in foreign markets. Isn't it time you got involved? Learn how Australian fintechs can power your business today. Visit shinewithaustralia.gov.au forward slash fintech. Okie dokie. All right. Well, let's move on from the present day and look at how things are really changing in the market and what will come next. It's always good for a little bit of future gazing, isn't it? Um, what does the future of data enrichment look like, do you guys think? I mean, where are we going to go next? Is this is this more of more? Are we going to see greater data sense, greater sophistication, more real-time intelligence around that? Uh, I'm learning from a lesson here. Chris, you're going last. Livia, what do you think? Where are we going with this? Is this a, an industry trend change? Yeah, I definitely think so. And I think that point that I made at the beginning um, around the, some of these things, obviously not all of them and not to the level of sophistication that we have now, have been thought of as as key indicators for fraud and at the point of sale. Um, and certainly in my area, I'm beginning to see it catch up on the AML side of things as well. And seeing that movement over is is a key part of how I see transaction monitoring going forward, that ability to take in external data um, and use it to assess what normal looks like, to segment your your customer base um, better. I think it's the, the absolute only way forward. There, there isn't an option. We can't keep on going the way we have, um, especially with, with AML transaction monitoring. It's highly, highly flawed. Yeah. So the use of data in the sense is a definite. Um, I think how it happens, the ability of companies to take this on is the same age-old issue that we keep on talking about every time I get on a, on a webinar about AI and monitoring and everything. If the data's crap and if you haven't got it organized, you're not going to be able to use it, and that's the first thing. I mean, do you know what? It's funny. I did say that my uh, to my son the other day, the whole sort of, you know, go-go principle. It's like garbage in, garbage out. You know, if you don't actually... Uh, I think I was talking to him about it with bad passes in football, like completely different context of it in, the, in, that, in that sense. But but if you if you don't get something good in, it's very difficult to process that and do anything good with it to, to come out of that sense. But I do completely agree with you, though. It's the, the ability of those organizations to actually process it in that sense and be data data centric you know if you are really a an insights a data centric organization i think the the business works in a in a fundamentally different way yeah i think what we've seen is as companies desperately trying to be more data driven in their aml and forgetting that point that if you're going to pull in internal data from everywhere else you need to build it from the ground up in a joint way from the beginning you can't segregate off treasury and payments and your swift and your domestic and your aml and your compliance it has to all come together but the thing about using all that data and that, that, you know, I mentioned getting rid of false positives, there is a slight problem that the more data we use, we could actually just create a false positive problem somewhere else. And if you think back to when, you know, if you ever traveled and your debit card suddenly got blocked and it was never when you were in like a safe, normal place in France with me, it was when I was stuck in the middle of Rio and couldn't, you know, couldn't get anywhere and desperately needed cash. That was when my bank decided this was not, not normal behavior for me and blocked it. If we start to get too many data points, are we actually creating a false positive problem somewhere else? I think that's a possibility for the future as well. 
Yeah, and, I, and where does that sit? You know, where does that sit in a context problem? Is it a business problem or is it a customer problem? And actually how you surface that to people is, you know, ultimately creating a great experience or creating a real pain in the butt for you in, when you're trying to get a drink in Rio or something. But uh, I, I, what, what do you think, Chris? Is this a, are we on a, a, a trajectory now of creating an industry that is, is much more data-led, do you think? Yeah, I think on on Olivia's point there, I think what some of the the banks are doing are looking to kind of address that that kind of false positive um, by having a much kind of more omni-channel view of customer activity. Um, so in the past, it might be you know, what you're doing with your credit card is not assessed in the same way that what you're doing on internet banking or mobile banking is. But actually, if you said, well, hold on, Olivia just logged on to the mobile banking app in Rio and now she's withdrawing money in Rio. Maybe that's that's lower risk. So certainly joining together all those those channels is something that we're seeing. And actually, you know, at the moment, most most places actually have their kind of cards side of things and digital channels, you know, totally separate. So I think that's kind of one area where you know the the data is going to be brought together to make better decisions. Um, but also just more more organisations, I think, are going to be forced as well to share their their data. Um, you know, PJ touching it at the beginning around some of the scams, right, which result from, you know, Instagram, you know, you, you can, you see this flashy Lamborghini, you know, you can get rich by buying this crypto, all that kind of stuff. Well, you know, Instagram know who's been targeted with these kind of ads, or, you know, Facebook know that this person is probably talking to a romance scam, you know, and, and it's that kind of information, which should be shared with the banks when money is going out the door to actually say, hold on, you know, there's enough things from what the customer, you know, why, why is the customer making that payment? It's because of this that actually should be then used to protect the customers. I mean, how much do you think on that sense then, you, you know, you talked there a little about sort of the, the sources of data. I mean, we've been quite lucky, haven't we, when, within the European Union and, and obviously in the UK with open banking, things like PSD2 have, have created a, a different dynamic of sources of data. But a lot of the data sources we've been talking about so far have been almost, uh, you know, non-trusted in inverted commas. Never really works particularly well on a podcast, but non-trusted um, because essentially they are sort of open uh, through various different companies or through uh, individuals volunteering them. So uh, how do you think we get to, to, back to our point earlier on around, well, you know, good data in, good decisions being made. How do we increase the the, the source sophistication and quality of the data that we can we can bring through. Yeah, so one thing that we always make sure when we you know, deploy our technology is that data is labelled correctly, um, because it's not only like the quality of the data, you know, fields missing, all that kind of stuff, but we actually want to know, you know this resulted in this fraud, and it wasn't just fraud; it was this specific type of fraud, because that then ultimately is fed into you know, systems like feature space to accurately then detect when, um, you know, when this same kind of forging activity is, is happening in the future. So I think labeling is a, a, a key thing. Um, and then also, you know, potentially sharing that information across organizations as well. So, you know, where our technology might have been used to say, stop someone falling victim to sending their house deposit to a, you know, a fake solicitor account, what, every other bank should be aware of is that that account is a mule account. And so if any, anyone else in the whole network is trying to make a payment to that account, that it should be, should be stopped. But at the moment, a lot of the time it's often not done in real time. And also the only things that get added to that, that kind of list or that watch list are kind of confirmed fraud. And it might take you know, a week, 10 days to confirm it's fraud, in which case it's, it's too late. The mule accounts already kind of moved on. So I think you know data sharing and and is key to to actually helping prevent that. And the the payment service regulator is is setting up some initiatives around that as well. It's it's interesting, isn't it? That on that point, then if you know we're we're drawing heavier and heavier on non traditional financial services data sources. I mean, arguably, you know, data isn't the bank's jobs you know i mean they don't make money from data they can try and prevent losing money but platforms like facebook and google like these guys are, are steeped in monetizing data in a real way i mean it feels like the relationships between big tech and big banking can only really 
be the the answer to to trying to solve some of these problems, both in terms of what can the financial services players learn from big tech in terms of, you know, the structure around it, the usage of it, but fundamentally gaining access to those greater sources. Do So I, I guess, I mean, PJ, do you think we're going to see much more collaboration going forward in the future of big towers of data being able to to really face into these problems? Because it's not a company problem. It's like an entirety of a, this is a world problem, right? You know, money laundering, fraud at this level, like these are big ticket problems, aren't they? Yeah. And I think some of it will maybe be forced by by regulations of, you know, different tech companies, different social media platforms having to take responsibility for the type of scams that are going on on their on, on their websites and and on their platforms and their apps. Um, I believe there was a change recently made in the, in the UK law where they're they're including social media into into the scope of it. Uh, I don't know it. Uh, the, in, the ins and outs of all of it. But I do think regulation and kind of accountability from that standpoint will help. I think there are some kind of open source data that you can get from social media platforms. And there's some solution providers that are leveraging that, which can help, which is more of um, pulling that data from them as opposed to them collaborating and offering it up. Um, but I do think, you know, especially when you look at scams, it's such a multifaceted problem, starting with education, educating the consumer, not to do certain things or the, you know, uh, single really single point of failure. But then when it comes from a technology standpoint, it's not just the banks, not just the fraud teams in the banks, it's social media platforms. It's, it's lots of different types of companies that can play a role in uh, ultimately the scam not happening and this person not losing life changing amounts of money. So um, just from a societal issue to your point, it's it's important to move down that direction. It's just from a realistic standpoint, regulations and, and things like that, I think, are what will kind of push some of the players that are um, not losing money like the banks are in these in these transactions, uh, because otherwise they don't have as much incentive to do that. I mean, this has been fascinating. As Livia said, I think we uh, we could have been talking about this for the next you know four hours as a as a as a setup. Uh, we are going to have to close this out, I'm afraid. What I'm going to put you guys on the spot because we haven't even prepped you for this question in any way, shape, or form. But like looking forward, you know, we we've seen we've talked here about technology, about regulation, about the outcomes for customers, the the change of culture within big organizations to do it. What do you guys think we're going to get in five years' time in this? Because actually, with all of this acceleration. There is so much opportunity. So, Olivia, where, where do you think we're going to? What What is your hope for the industry in this sense five years from now? And do you know what? We'll come back in five years and record another podcast and see whether it comes true or not. So, you better be accurate right now. My biggest hope is that I'm not still working in AML. But other than that, <laughs> I'll be happy to come back and see if I can comment on it in five years' time. Um, I mean, my hope for it would be that transaction monitoring is fueled by this kind of data that can help us make more. Uh, accurate decisions faster and hopefully in an automated way. Um, that, that, you know, 1% of false positives, 1% of true hits is um, a ridiculous statistic that, that changes for your organization, but is just not good enough. So I'm sure that monitoring of behavior will be fueled by more of this kinds of data. We can do it more in real time. We can do it more accurately. Um, and then the ability to network that data as well across other financial institutions is probably my real hope um, versus something that I'm sure is going to happen. And that's, to Chris's point, is about data sharing across financial institutions, across regulators and across national crime units so that we can actually see where these networks really sit because nothing takes place within an organization. I think that's less likely and will take longer term, longer, a longer period of time rather than just implementing better data into our systems, which should absolutely happen. Okay. All right. Uh PJ, what do you reckon? What's your hope for the industry in five years' time? Yeah, I would say to harness the data. I think, you know, start internally. What what do you have? Because there's a lot there across online banking, cards, originations, um, AML, AML, and fraud. So harnessing all those different data sources and being more efficient across each of those traditionally siloed organizations um, within the organization. And then external data, it's harnessing it as well because you can look at vendors out there. There's loads doing device ID and behavioral biometrics. And, you know, so, you know, you can evaluate the, 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 the value of each of those, but what does that mean for you? Which ones are going to be useful to you for your unique fraud cases? And how do you put that into a business case where it, it makes sense to, to, to bring it in? So I think 
there's loads of data out there. Harnessing it is um, one of the most important things over the next five years. Completely agree. Chris, what do you reckon? What's the, what's the hope? What's the wish? Where are we going to get to in five years? Well, I think the first wish is that actually as, you know, as a population, you know, we become a lot more clued up to, to scams and how they, they happen and you know, what, to, what to trust and you know, who, who to trust and yeah, have that kind of educational piece and you know, almost have that awareness you know, when you're you know, modules in school or whatever to, to understand that you can't necessarily trust everything um, that, you know, that you're you know, when someone calls you up out of the blue, right? So I think there's that kind of educational piece, but then also, um, you know, the of every side of financial transaction, there's a beneficiary. Um, and if you make it as hard as possible to actually create these mule accounts to get money out the door, you know, close that kind of that side of things as well. That actually, it then becomes you know such a hard target that you know, fraudsters kind of move away. Um, but you know, ultimately. There's always going to be new things that are introduced, um, you know, like the some of the, you know, the, the the bounce back loans and all these other things that were introduced through the, the pandemic. Right, we know, we've seen how much they've been abused. Um, just hopefully, people are kind of aware of when they introduce new new products or capabilities that they have that that you know they have that assessment up front to understand. Okay, this is how they might be abused if I if I introduce this. Yeah. I mean, that education point, I think, is absolutely spot on. You know, so much of this is letting people know what they should and shouldn't expect from an industry. But uh, but I think we all agree, I think, with what everybody's saying is this is a this is evolving continually. You know, the the fight on this as an industry is evolving continually and the weaponry we have to fight it is continually evolving, but equally so are the bad guys. So uh, staying ahead of that is going to be super duper important. All right, guys, though, we have definitely run out of time. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. Uh, that does wrap up the discussion for today. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Where can people learn a little bit more about you and your companies? Uh, starting with you, Livia. Uh, LinkedIn and Twitter or the Banking Circle website. Very good. What's the what's the uh, domain for Banking Circle website? Bankingcircle.com. There you go. Nice and easy. All right, PJ, where can people learn a little bit more about you and your company? Yeah, futurespace.com, LinkedIn. I have a website on the side called About Fraud, About Dash Fraud, uh, which is a, a side project I do. Any of those are great. Fantastic. And Chris, where can people learn a little bit more about you and CallSign? Yeah, head over to callsign.com and request a demo and I'm happy to kind of walk you through what we're doing. Very, very good. As for me, you can find me lurking predominantly on LinkedIn these days. So I look forward to uh, speaking to you there. Thank you so much for listening. If you have liked what you've heard, then subscribe to this podcast. And don't forget to leave us a review. It makes it super duper easy for other people to find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, you can find us on pretty much every social media channel at this stage. Just search for 11FS or Fintech Insider. Or if you really want to, you can email us our podcasts at 11FS.com. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. Goodbye.